We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio and podcast show that brings independent and interesting STEM, so that's science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine, to you from Tasmania. This show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium news station. So head on over to edge.org.au for more information about them. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners on the land on which we are recording, the Palo and Pakana. We're recording on Luchuita, and as we are a podcast, we would also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from where you, our listener, are tuning in from. On behalf of everyone here, I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'm joined by a newly inducted Twix co-host, Simin Salapur. Last week, we heard from Simin about her work and her research, and we're continuing our mini-series on space and radio astronomy with today's guest, Karen Bradford. But I'm going to hand over to Simin to tell you more about our guest. All right. Hello, everyone. Today, we are sitting with Karen in the museum, <laughs> Grove River Museum. Karen was the executive officer for the School of Mathematics and Physics, and she became the project manager for the building and installation at the Grove River Museum. She has since retired, but continued to supervise and manage the museum. Karen, welcome to the show. Great to have you with us today. Karen, you were the executive officer for the School of Maths and Physics at the University of Tasmania. How was your job? My job was very busy, (laughs) um, but a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the interaction with staff and students, especially the students. Um, And leading on to that, coming into the museum, um, I was very blessed to have a great head of school in Professor John Dickey. And when I explained to him that I'd already done large installations with ExxonMobil, he um, trusted me to, to do the project management and installation here. Great, and thank you very much for the hard working. I know it's a lot of busy job to do around the school and the museum. And you mentioned about students and, of course, the researchers at that time. How did you help all those researchers and students in the astronomy field specifically to make sure everything went smoothly? That was a big juggle. <laughs> um, but generally, like I said, I had, I had a really good head of school that let me be what I wanted to be, do what I wanted to do, and he saw something in me that I probably didn't see in myself, in that he gave me the freedom um, to do the project management on this, to still run the school, you know, like I had, I can't remember how many um, academics, but they were all good, and, and all the students were there, and it was a really hands-on job. Did you always know that this field of work was what you wanted to end up in? No, (laughs) absolutely not. Um, It was just something that fell onto my desk, um, along with things like foundation units that that I instigated and and got going within the school. But, you know, it it gave me an opportunity to spread. Um, Probably one of the things I enjoyed most was the outreach, the open days that we used to have and things like that. What sort of outreach did you do? Do you have any highlights or favourites that you can tell us about? We used to do a lot of outreach in the School of Maths and Physics, and but, but probably the main one we would focus on every year would be an open day out here at the radio telescope in conjunction with the Great River Museum. We would open the museum. Um, it would be 
free to come in, but we would do things like face painting, um, liquid nitrogen ice cream, water rockets. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was good and it was fun and everybody contributed. Yeah. That sounds like a really fun day and a really funky ice cream <laughs> flavour or way to make it. So that's an open day that's for families, presumably with the face painting, although I, as an adult, would also still love to do some face painting. Do you have any open days for prospective students or do you have many university students that can come and check out what it would be like to be involved with the observatory and museum? So we haven't had any open days since COVID. Um, I retired and it's just sort of fallen off the agenda with the university. Um, but the students are always welcome to come out and have a look and to talk to, to Brett and whoever's out here uh, about their futures and, and what they perceive. And we found that through having open days, we, we brought many students in that wanted to come to Tasmania to live, sometimes to get away from their parents, um, sometimes... <laughs> just for a change of life or because we are one of the only telescopes where students can get live time. Did you say students can get live time? What does that mean? It means they can do their observing here. They don't have to travel away to other telescopes, um, that it's pretty well on demand. And we're going to be hearing from Brett in next week's episode, listener, as well. Last week, Simon told us where we can find out more about the museum, but could you just remind our listeners where they can find out more information? Um, we have a website that's um, www.greatrebamuseum.com.au. Cool. Thank you very much. So far, so good. <laughs> Stick with us for part two as we delve into Karen's work here in Tasmania. Want to know more about science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine? Then tune in to Edge Radio 5pm on Sundays to hear That's What I Call Science. You can also find us on all of your favourite podcast streaming services. Be sure to like and subscribe us on any of our socials. We are listening to That's What I Call Science and today we are joined by Karen Bradford. Karen, as mentioned before, you, may, you became the project manager for the building and installation at the Grote River Museum. Why the museum was important to build? Okay, so the benefactor that, that donated the money to, to the building of the museum had been speaking to Professor John Dickey out here and he wanted to bring Grote's original shed to, to the site and John spoke to him and in the end he gave a substantial amount of money for the building and installation of the, of the museum. Martin George from the Queen Victoria Museum had already done the the collation of the catalogue, so everything was ready to go. We started the museum in about July 2007 and we had it up and going by January 2008, which was pretty pretty big going, you know, for the size of the installation. Um, we had a really good um, builder with Cole Morgan and he liaised with um, both me, John, the benefactor, and we got everything going the way the benefactor wanted because at the end of the day, it was his baby. You know, he, he was donating the money. This is what he wanted. So we, we got a lot more out of it than um, we actually started with, you know, i.e. We've, we've got the 3D theatre, um, which we can watch 3D movies on. You know, we, we ended up with an office instead of just a kitchen. You know, it's, it's been really good. Upstairs we have um, growth artefacts for changing around in the museum. What sort of artefacts do you have up there? 
we had everything his little heart desired <laughs> and ever owned. You know, when we were putting the dummy into Groat's original shed, you know, he's dressed in his original clothes. We have his old vacuum cleaner. We have everything that he ever had in, in his place. You know, he had an array at Bothwell, and so there are, there are parts of that that are upstairs. Yeah, and in part three, we're going to be walking around the museum and talking about some of those exciting things around there. So in terms of how the museum is run, is it a big team of you that are all involved? No, currently bookings are for groups um, and they're done via the website. Um, we don't have anybody really that, that manages it as such. I, I watch from a distance. Brett and Warren handle it from this side. Simon is my go-to person. And we're right next door to the observatory, the sort of overlapping building. So what can you break down uh, for us a bit more about what the interaction between the two facilities are like? Is, are they a lot to do with each other or just separate and just happen to be next to each other? They're separate, but they're combined. Um, I have to say I'm very blessed to have Brett and his team working at the telescope and they're very obliging to people that just turn up if they can be. Um, but they also open it up, turn on the heaters, make it make it livable. Are the tours that are run in the museum, do they give any glimpse to the telescope next door as well, or is that run separately? Yes, they have tours of the control room as well. Um, so they talk about the, the life of Grote and what he contributed to, to society. They watch the 3D movies. Um, and then they generally go to the control room and have a look around there. Groups are often school kids, um, school tours, sometimes older people, you know, sometimes groups are just one or two. So um, could you please tell us a little bit more about Grove River himself, if you have anything for our listeners? I didn't know Grove personally at all, but um, I've heard many stories of him <laughs> since. Um, many people that come on tours knew him personally and all, everybody says he was an eccentric. Um, he lived alone, never married. He, he did really weird things um, like he would buy a packet of prunes and weigh them before he ate them and then he would measure how much the, prune, uh, the, the pips weighed separately and then measure his bowel movements. <laughs> That's what kids like. They like toilet humour. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so everyone's got to have a hobby. <laughs> he measured everything. He was absolutely fanatical in everything he did. Um, we have letters where he wrote to the Prime Minister explaining why we should have solar, solar panels before they were even thought of. You know, he, he was a man ahead of his time. He was very intelligent, um, but very eccentric. Very good. Thank you very much. And stick with us, listeners, for part three as we discuss Karen's work here in the museum. Welcome back, listeners. And now we're going to be taking you on a mini tour of the museum. That's Lammy, the museum dog in the background that you might hear. So, Karen, where are we walking into? So this is a 3D movie theatre, um, which is set up to show astronomy 3D. Um, the, the movies come from Swinburne, and, yeah, uh, each tour gets at least one movie. Yeah. 
Nice. And I love all the glasses on each of the seats. It's very uh, sci-fi. They are specific 3D glasses for this theatre. Nice. We have um, Jim Lovell's landscape of um, the, the museum and the observatory. Yeah, he went. I think he went up in the cherry picker with Brett to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the Jim Lovell that you heard a few weeks ago, listeners, was also on the show. So make sure you go back a few episodes and check it out if you missed it. So this, the electromagnetism spectrum was set up by um, Eric Baines, who works at the museum currently. He, he worked permanently there, but now he's just doing a bit of casual work. So yes, this was set up by him. Here is a picture of his dish that he built in the backyard of his mother's home in Chicago, Illinois. Um, Over here, we have a replica of it. I believe his mother used to hang her washing from it. (laughs) I don't know what my mother would do if I made such a big dish in our back garden. (laughs) Um, I believe he came from quite a wealthy family, Um, his father being a senator in the US, and his mother taught Hubble. Fancy. And so what are we looking at here in these display cabinets? Well, we have... His reading glasses, <laughs> his pencil stubs. He never threw anything out. He kept absolutely everything. His hearing aid. Oh. Yes, his slide rule. And oh, we even have some chopsticks that were never used but saved by him. <laughs> That's right. So this is the letter that he wrote about the future of mankind. Oh, yeah, that's the piece, actually, I mentioned that I like about the museum. Oh, shout out to last week's episode. <laughs> um, He was always writing letters to somebody, um, but what he would do is um, he would post it either without a stamp or if they'd written to him first, he would just open it up, write their name on the envelope and send it back. (laughs) Amazing. Absolutely. I'll just read you the first few sentences, listeners. The future of mankind. The human race is heading for a disaster. And I'll leave it there because I think that sums up a lot of (laughs) where I guess he saw it going. There's a picture of his house that he built at Bothwell, Deniston at Bothwell, and um, it's probably one of the first solar solar houses, you know, within Tasmania, I would think. Wow. You used to do things like um, grow beans to see why they grew one way in the Northern Hemisphere and one way in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm. Energy Efficient Award for 1990 for for his house design. And here I think this is his typewriter. Oh, the future of mankind. But there was a, there, there is a letter somewhere, and maybe it's still here, that he sent to the Prime Minister. Can you imagine typing on these typewriters? <laughs> no, I cannot. Not easy to correct a mistake, for sure. No, absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> and now we're coming over to some funky vehicles, and if we want to just head over to that... It, what we're looking at, listeners, looks like something out of a Wallace and Gromit film. Can you explain what we're looking at, Karen? Uh, this is Groot Rebus' car, Pixie. Um, he built it himself and I think it was electric. Mm. Yeah, plus his electric bike. And it kind of looks like a mini submarine with four wheels. <laughs> I don't really know a better way to describe it, but that. But the fact that it worked and he built it himself... Impressive. He used to drive it around the streets, I believe. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. And over here in the corner, which startled me earlier when I first walked in, is we have a mannequin of the man himself. And uh, this is Rote's original shit. So this was the bit that was transported down and the rest was added onto it. 
Um, so yes, that that's him, you know, studying whatever he was studying at that stage. Yeah. In a nice yellow sweater. That's his. That's his. And the trousers are his. Wow. He nearly had to break his legs to get them. Oh. <laughs> Last but not least, what do we have in this corner? This is the Morewood corner. Yeah. This is where um, where Groat's ashes are all the way around the world. And we have one lot left that is due to go to the moon at some stage. But these are all the observatories that he had either worked at or had contacts with. In fact, I think he was with them all at one stage. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for joining us today and having us here down at the Groat River Museum. Thank you, Simon, for co-hosting your first episode on Twix. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> and you'll hear more from Simon next week, listeners, as we are joined by some other guests here at the museum. But that's you'll have to wait a whole week to listen to it. So thank you so much for listeners for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you loved listening today, you can find out more about the show by Googling That's What I Call Science or That Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. From all of us here... Thank you and have a wonderful week. Hello listeners, you're tuned into That's What I Call Science. It's Ollie here with you for a little while longer and I really hope you enjoyed the in-person tour just now of the Groat Reba Museum. Getting to talk with Simon on last week's episode, Karen on this, and next week you'll hear our interview with Brett and Patrick. And it's been amazing to hear from all of them because honestly, the observatory is one of Hobart's worst kept secrets, I would say, given how big it is. And in theory, you should be able to spot it because a few months ago, I was at a wedding nearby and I could faintly see this white object in the distance beyond the vineyards. I didn't pay it much attention because... Well, I was at a wedding, but if I'd actually looked properly, I would have seen a giant dish sticking out of the landscape. In fact, driving up to the museum and the observatory for the first time to meet our guests and passing the big dishes along the road felt like I was suddenly in Interstellar or a sci-fi film and preparing to go save humanity from aliens. It was really surreal. But you're not tuned in to hear me talk about fictional life with aliens. Instead, I have some more fascinating information for you all about the awesome Mount Pleasant Radio Observatory and the captivating Groat Reba Museum next door. But I do want to make sure that you understand every aspect of this incredible world of radio astronomy, so I'll stop and explain any jargon I use along the way, or at least I'll explain as well as a zoologist could hope to explain astrophysics. So let's dive right in. Or should I say dive up, considering we're headed to the stars? So the Mount Pleasant Radio Telescope Observatory is a hub of scientific exploration that has been operating for over 20 years. Its distinctive 26-metre diameter radio dish has been scanning above us for years, revealing secrets of our universe. But what exactly is a radio dish? Because it's not something that you'd find in your kitchen, presumably. But in the context of radio astronomy, a dish refers to the large curved reflector that collects radio waves from celestial objects. It's like a giant antenna that enables us to receive and study radio signals coming from space. Now nestled within the observatory grounds is the Astronomy Museum, dedicated to the brilliant Tasmanian... 
radio astronomer Grote Reber. But what exactly is radio astronomy? Radio astronomy is a branch of astronomy that focuses on studying celestial objects and phenomena, say that word five times fast, using radio waves instead of visible light. It allows us to observe and understand objects that may not emit visible light, but still emit radio waves, such as galaxies, pulsars and quasars, you know, all that stuff from Star Trek. So Grote Reber, often referred to as the father of radio astronomy, made groundbreaking contributions to this field. He was the first person to build a big dish antenna specifically for mapping the sky at radio frequencies. And to put it simply, he created a large, powerful antenna capable of detecting and analysing radio waves emitted by celestial objects. His pioneering work led to the discovery of countless discrete radio sources and the mapping of the band of bright radio emission from our galaxy, the Milky Way. Now, let's explore the Grote Reber Museum within the observatory's grounds. This museum showcases not only Reber's achievements, but also the radio telescopes and radio astronomy work of the University of Tasmania. A radio telescope is a specialised instrument designed to detect and receive radio waves from space. It allows astronomers to observe and study celestial objects in the radio frequency range, providing unique insights into the universe, as we spoke about. And as we venture through the museum, you'll come face to face with Reber's telescopes, witnessing the tools that revolutionised our understanding of the cosmos. But what exactly is a telescope? A telescope is an optical instrument that collects and magnifies light or other electromagnetic radiation to observe distant objects. In the case of radio telescopes, they collect radio waves instead of visible light. Again, enabling us to explore the universe beyond what our eyes can see. And at the museum, they actually have this figure up where you can see visible light compared to radio waves. And there's so much more we can understand in space by using radio waves that we would just never have even known was there by looking up. You can also, at the museum, step into Reba's original radio shack, which sounds like a place where we could host an episode from. But the Radio Shack is the control building for the radio telescope array. Here, you'll find Reba's authentic radio equipment, giving you a glimpse into the life and work of this visionary astronomer. But what is a Radio Shack, besides where some people host amazing podcasts? In the context of radio astronomy, a Radio Shack refers to a building or a structure that houses the control systems, receivers, and other equipment used for operating and monitoring radio telescopes. The museum goes beyond showcasing Reba's achievements, though. It offers an immersive experience into the world of radio astronomy, and I really recommend you get over there to check it out. But what exactly is radio frequency spectrum? Well, the radio frequency spectrum refers to the range of frequencies within the electromagnetic spectrum that correspond to radio waves. The museum uses graphic illustrations and physical demonstrations of electromagnetic waves to help visitors understand the spectrum and its significance in studying the universe. 
As you explore the museum, you'll have the opportunity to gaze upon matching illustrations of galaxies as seen in the radio and optical spectrums, which is what I mentioned earlier when I said they have that figure that lets you see what we can't see. But what is the optical spectrum? Well, the optical spectrum refers to the range of frequencies within the electromagnetic spectrum that corresponds to visible light. And by comparing the radio and optical spectrums, we can gain a more comprehensive understanding of celestial objects and their characteristics. Now, you can also be amazed by the museum's virtual reality theatre, which was generously provided by Swinburne University of Technology. And that cutting-edge technology allows visitors to immerse themselves in entertaining and educational three-dimensional movies and demonstrations. Through virtual reality, you can journey through the cosmos, witnessing astronomical wonders like never before. So remember, listeners, the Grote Reber Museum, and that's spelt G-R-O-T-E for Grote and R-E-B-E-R for Reber, So the Grote Reber Museum can warmly welcome school groups and the public alike, but reservations are necessary to ensure you have the opportunity to witness the wonders it has to offer. So make sure you plan your visit and embark on a journey through the cosmos. If you look up Grote Reber Museum, you'll be able to find out more information online and how to book those tours. So I hope you enjoyed this extended chat about the Mount Pleasant Radio Observatory and the Grote Reber Museum. By unravelling the mysteries of radio astronomy and celebrating the contributions that Grote Reber made to this field, we can all take a step closer and upwards to understanding the vastness and beauty of our universe. Thank you so much for listening to That's What I Call Science today. We love bringing you space-related content. We really hope you enjoyed the show. As we said, we had Simon on last week, we had Karen on this week, and next week you'll hear from Brett and Patrick, and we even get to go into the control room at the observatory, which was a really exciting place to see inside. If you loved the show, you can get in touch with us by searching That's What I Call Science or That Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'd like to thank my co-host, Simon Salapur, and our expert guest, Karen Bradford from the Grote Reber Museum, for joining me today. I really hope you all have a wonderful week, and don't forget to take a look up at those stars tonight. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science at all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information. At That's What I Call Science, we love bringing engaging content to all sorts of audiences, and this includes youth. So if you're a teacher at a local school here in Tasmania and have students interested in science, technology, engineering, maths or medicine topics, then let us know and we can come into your school and get them on the radio talking about their favourite exciting scientific ideas.